And thank you for coming on this cold Sunday morning in March. You know, today is one of my four favorite Sundays of the year because of the season that we're getting ready to, uh, to move into. As a pastor, you get excited about a few different Sundays in a year because, because you know they have tremendous spiritual opportunity. And this is one of those Sundays. The first Sunday of January is always one of those Sundays. You know you've got people who are ready to re-engage spiritually. You've got people who have come through a holiday season and, and you really have a schedule that hasn't fired up yet. So in January and February, you have an opportunity to make great spiritual impact. You always know that back to school Sunday, the third Sunday of August, is going to be good as a pastor because people who have been in and out all summer are going to be able to get back engaged at church and some of the summer sports are going to be coming to an end and people aren't going to be going to the lake as much. So back to school Sunday, that third Sunday of August is always really exciting. The first Sunday of December is always really exciting because you're moving in to the Christmas season and you know that you've got people's attention and you've got people leaning in spiritually. But probably the best Sunday of the year and the best time period of the year is the Sunday after spring break. Because the Sunday after spring break becomes the starting line of the sprint that will take us into Easter and through Mother's Day. And for me, it's my favorite time of the year every year in the church. The Sunday after spring break through Easter is when real spiritual impact has its greatest opportunity in the lives and the hearts of people. And today we begin a six-week sprint to Easter Sunday with a brand new series, if you looked at the front of your bulletin, simply called The Veil. Or maybe you saw the banner when you walked in. We're going to, beginning today, in the next six weeks, walking up to Easter Sunday, we're going to look at the spiritual significance of Easter and specifically how Easter has the opportunity to end humanity's separation from God. Now, if you have your Bible, we're going to start today in Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to kind of live around Matthew 27 for the next six weeks. If you didn't bring your Bible today, or you don't have one on your phone or your tablet, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. They've got Bibles that you can use. They've got Bibles that you can have. So if you need a Bible today, just wave at them. We gave away several in the first service. We'll kind of be flipping all over Scripture today, so I'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. We've given away more than 600 Bibles since our church began just by doing this before service. So if you forgot yours and are just using it today, just lay it on the table when you leave. If you can't find your Bible or you don't have one, put your name in it. This one's yours. It's our gift to you. I hope you'll go home and start reading the story in the life of Jesus, and it'll have tremendous impact on your life. In Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 33, we meet Jesus on the cross at Calvary. And from this point forward, we march as a church towards Easter. But before we jump into Scripture, let me have your attention and let me ask you this question. Who are you planning to invite this Easter Sunday? Because there's no better Sunday during the course of a year to invite friends or family who are maybe away from God, who are maybe opposed to God, who church isn't their normal thing, or they're just the busyness of their life has not allowed them to be deeply connected to church. Who in your world is separated from God right now in their daily life that you would like to see reconnect in a powerful way. Because Easter Sunday is your chance. And if you don't have April 20th cemented in your head and circled on your calendar yet as the day you're going to begin inviting people to church and thinking about, then you're going to miss a major opportunity. So if I talk to somebody this week about church, I'm going to invite them this week, not next Sunday, but Easter Sunday, because I know that there's a greater chance someone will say yes to church on Easter than any other Sunday of the year. So don't 
miss your opportunity to invite your coworkers, your employees, your employers, your friends, your neighbors, your relatives. We'll have a lot of people who will come to two services on Easter Sunday. They'll invite one friend who can come at 9.15. They'll invite a family member who can't come till 10.45. And they'll make Easter not about them, but all about the other people that they can invite. So begin to think about April 20th and Easter, because on that day we'll finish this series with a dynamic message on how people can end their separation from God. But we begin that today at Calvary. Matthew chapter 27, verse 33 says this, they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now I want to stop right there because every year our church goes to Israel. Our next Israel trip will, will leave Wednesday, May 27th, 2015. I've had a lot of people ask me, Christian, when are we going back to Israel? May 27th, 2015, the plane will leave for Israel. And those of you who go to Israel, we've had nearly 30 people in our church go so far. Those of you who go will look at this place, Golgotha, the place of the skull, and you'll see literally carved out of a hill, two eyes and a nose, and the mouth of a man that's slowly been degrading, but a, but a mountain that looks like a skull. And when you read this, you'll think about what you've seen every, every time for the rest of your life. So 33 says they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priest and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Verse 45, now from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone and let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life. They came out of the tomb after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that happened. They were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Now, I don't know if you picked up on it, but in verses 50 and 51 of Matthew chapter 27, outside of Easter Sunday, and perhaps equal to Easter Sunday in importance, because there had been an empty tomb before Lazarus just a week earlier had been raised from the dead. But, but just behind Easter Sunday and maybe equal to Easter Sunday in importance is what we read in Matthew chapter 27 verse, verses 50 and 51. Because according to Matthew, who was an eyewitness of this account, what is the very first thing that happened when Jesus died? 
I don't know if you saw it in Matthew 27, 50. It said Jesus breathed his last and gave up his spirit. Then in the New King James Version, if you pulled your sermon notes out of your bulletin that, that, that you have with you there, in the New King James Version, it, it has a little more old school language, a little more traditional language, a little more like the Old Testament would have said it. In Matthew 27, 51, the very first thing to happen after Jesus died, according to Matthew, is that behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the readers who were reading the Gospel of Matthew would have stopped in their tracks when they read this because this to them would have been, at the time, the most significant spiritual event in the history of the world. Now, the Gospel of Matthew, we know gospel means good news. The book of Matthew was written to a Jewish audience to introduce the Old Testament's promised Messiah to the world. Matthew was a Jewish tax collector, and he wrote to his Jewish friends, proving from the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, that the Old Testament promised that a Savior would come, and he would change everything in the world and everything in Israel. And Matthew wrote his letter to prove that Jesus was the Savior that the Old Testament promised. But the Gospel of Matthew was also written, God allowed it to be written to the world, all of us, to explain who the, who the Jewish Messiah is to us. And as a matter of fact, if, if we understand who Jesus is without understanding who the Old Testament said the Jewish Messiah will be to us, we're really missing half the game of Christianity. As a matter of fact, as a world religion, Christianity is, isn't technically a world religion. It's Judeo-Christian faith. That's the actual religion. And the truth is this, to truly understand the Judeo-Christian faith, you have to have a clear understanding of Jesus' work behind the veil in Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 and 51. I believe this is so important that a year ago, I began working on this series and, and are going to take six weeks to explain this one aspect of Jesus' life, his work behind the veil. Because when you talk about theology, theology means a knowledge of God and what we know about God. When you talk about soteriology, that means a knowledge or the study of salvation. When we talk about how a person can be reunited with God, you have to understand the Old Testament and New Testament dynamics of that to really live in it with all of your spirit. Judaism is incomplete in its understanding of a personal connection to God without Christianity. If we start at Genesis and we end at Malachi, we end at Malachi saying, okay, when is the guy going to come who reconnects everyone to God? In the same way, Christianity is incomplete in its understanding of a personal connection to God without Judaism. Because we can't understand what all this stuff about the cross and the veil and the grave and the sacrifice and the blood, we can't know what that means without the Old Testament. So without a clear understanding of the veil and what happened when God took that veil and tore it in, in two from top to bottom so that we could have access to him without a clear understanding of that scripturally, you and I can't know God the way that God wants us to know him. And then when, when, once you understand this, once you truly understand the, both the Jewish and Christian aspects of your faith, once you truly understand the promised Messiah of the Old Testament and the life of Jesus in the New Testament, and then you go to Israel and you worship, worship in the Holy Land with a Messianic Jewish congregation, there's nothing in the world like sitting in Israel worshiping Jesus with a bunch of Jewish people who understand who Jesus is because the Old Testament promised him, the New Testament 
qualified him and who it said he was, and then to watch them with all their ritualistic Judaism read the Torah, blow the shofar, sing all their songs about the, the renewing of Israel, and then to break out the New Testament and talk about Jesus. It's, it's a service unlike any other you will ever sit through. And on May 31st of 2015, we'll be with our ministry partners in Israel doing that again in Haifa. But it doesn't, it, that, that in itself doesn't even mean a whole lot to you unless you understand what Jesus did behind the veil and why it was so important for you and why it was so important for me. So today we begin a six-week journey on trying to understand the spiritual significance of the veil and more importantly, finding out how this ends our separation from God. Now, if we start in the beginning, like Genesis 1, in the beginning, what we realize when we look at a world that's separated from God, we have to remember that God created a world that had no relational separation between himself and humanity. When we see Jesus in Matthew 27, 50 die, and in Matthew 27, 51, we see the veil being torn. We have to know it didn't start that way. Jesus, God didn't create a world that had humanity separated from him. Adam and Eve did not wake up into a world where God, like the Wizard of Oz, was behind a curtain and they could have no access to him. On the contrary, God created a world that had zero relational separation between him and humanity. If you have your Bibles open, turn to Genesis chapter 2. I want to show you this. And we'll hang out in Genesis for a minute, so just keep your Bible open on your lap in Genesis. But according to Genesis 2, 7... Adam and Eve were created this way, and this is the access that Adam and Eve had to God. In Genesis 2, 7, it says, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That tells me that the first breath that man ever took, he took with the lips of God literally touching his face. Man did not wake up to a God behind a curtain. Man woke up to a God that was face to face. Man woke up to a God who would come hang out and take walks with him in the afternoon. In Genesis 3.8, it says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Many of you in the last two weeks, because it was finally nice outside, you went for a walk because when the weather's nice and the sun is out and it's kind of hot and the breeze is nice and fresh, you want to get outside. God was the same way. God created a world where at evening time, after they would grill out, he liked to take a walk around the garden. God created a world where he and humanity were, were not only together, but there was zero separation with, between God and humanity. Anyone who understands the Bible would look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and agree with that fact theologically. God intended to build a world that had zero separation between God and humanity. Unfortunately... As we look at point number two, humanity chose separation from God in order to have total control of self. You say, well, what went wrong? God created a world with no, with no separation between he and humanity, but God said, you're going to have to do it this way. And humanity said, you know what? We are going to choose being able to make our own decisions and do our own things rather than having total access to God. And, and they actually weighed this decision. In Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you'll die. You'll certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open." And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, if we stop right there, every one of us has been in this predicament. 
Every one of us has lived a moment in life where we get to a situation and we think God says this, but I'd really like to do this. And Adam and Eve found themselves, if we read the text carefully, together, where God said, you can have total access to me if you live life this way, but they really, they really wanted control of their own decisions. And verse 6 says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, it's what she wanted, she took some and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And humanity who, who was created in an environment where they had total access to God all day, every day, said, God, we're going to give that access back because we'd rather have control of our own lives than total access to you. And from Genesis chapter 3 to Matthew chapter 27, a barrier was built between God and humanity. If we look down in Genesis chapter 3, we see that humanity's choice of having total control of self, making all their own decisions, came with the consequences of total removal from their previous intimacy with God. God said, you can have total access to me if you do things my way. And they said, well, we'd, we'd like to kind of do things our way, but maybe still have a little bit of access. Is that okay? And God says, you can't have it both ways. And in Genesis chapter 3, verses, uh, verses 23 and 24, it says, the Lord God banished him, that's Adam and Eve, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, that's, those are angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So the very first separation of humanity from a full access relationship with God was their removal from the garden and a restriction from reentering by the angel. And from Genesis 3.23 to Matthew 27.50, there was something, there was a barrier in the way of having full access to a relationship with God. Genesis 1.1 to Genesis 3.22, it was perfect. Revelation 21.3 to the end of Revelation chapter 22, it's perfect. But the rest of Scripture up to Matthew 27.51, there was a barrier in the way of humans having full access to God. And the spiritual standard that was set was this. Man had rejected God's terms for total access to him, and it forever changed how man would interact with God, creating a barrier between God and humanity. Now, sometimes barriers are good. I'll never forget, about 14 years ago, Danielle and I were leaving college in Lynchburg, Virginia, and we were driving back to Kansas City. Everything we owned fit into this little small U-Haul uh, and we did not realize that the gas gauge was broken on that little U-Haul until we were driving. And many of you have made this drive. We were driving a, across I-70, getting ready to cross from um, Illinois, southern Illinois, into Missouri. And we got out on that massive four-lane bridge over the Mississippi River with cars flying by 75, 80 miles on either side of us per hour. And literally that little U-Haul that we were in sputtered to a stop dead in the middle of that bridge overlooking the Mississippi River with car. You could hear the tractor trailer tires locking up behind us as the thing just kind of grinded to a stop. And Daniel said, what's, what's wrong with us? I don't know. It says we got a quarter tank left. And we were dead. We were like sitting ducks over the Mississippi River. Danielle, I think, was 
19 or 20. I was 21 or 22, and I literally thought, we are going to die. Like, we, someone is going to hit us, and we're going, we're going over the side, and this is, this is it right here. It's going, it's going to be over. And I remember thinking, I can't get out my door because, I mean, cars were just, you could hear the brakes. You could smell the burning rubber from where tires were skidding, and they were just flying by on my side. And I told Danielle, I'm going to have to get out your side. We, we got to get out of this truck, or we're going to die. Like, someone is going to hit us. And I remember looking out her window and where we sat on the truck overlooking, it looked like you were going to drop right into the Mississippi, like 50 or 60 feet below, because there was just a little concrete barrier that couldn't have been any higher than three feet. And I remember slowly climbing out that door, and God bless some 18-wheeler that saw what was going on, and he whipped around into the lane that we were in, and he backed up to us and threw a chain from his truck around our front axle, and he said, we got to get you off this bridge before you get yourself killed. And he drug us across to the to the rest area that's right there just east of the river, uh, just west of the river. But I'll never forget getting out, and there, there wasn't much of a barrier, but I'll never forget how safe I felt knowing that at least I wasn't going to go from the U-Haul into the river. Barriers are good when you're in danger, but barriers are bad when you want access to something. Uh, late this week, Danielle and I were flying back from Phoenix after spending time with my mom and dad watching spring training and playing golf and tennis and just hanging out. And we got to the airport late last week in Phoenix, and it, it's, it, there were hundreds and hundreds of people flying home on Southwest Airlines. And I mean, the line was just forever snaked in and out. And I'm looking as we're getting ready to stand in line behind these hundreds of people. There's a Southwest counter just up ahead that has three or four checker people, and there's no line at all. And there's just a lady standing there. So I told Danielle, I said, let's go this way. So Danielle and the kids follow me. I got to the lady and I said, how do I, I, I want to go to that, I want to go to that one. I don't want to stand in the line. I said, how do I go to that one? And she said, you have to be A-list preferred. Um, and I said, well, what, how, how do I do that? Um, she's like, well, you got You have to have so many flights and you know, you like, you either are or, or you're not. And I said, well, how do I find out if I am? And she said, well, you would know if you were. And I said, well, I, I, like, is there anything that I could do? to have you let me go there instead of that line. And she said, you know, like, sir, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And I remember feeling so cheated that there was something good that I didn't have access to. And there was a barrier called A-list prefer and this little lady standing there who wouldn't let me go. I remember being so angry. And you know, there's times when I need immediate access to God. There's times when, when I need to talk to God, when I need help from God, when I need to pray. There's times that I need A-list, A-list preferred status to go up and have access to the God of the universe that because of what happened to Adam and Eve was removed and there's a barrier that puts me on the outside. Barriers can be good, but barriers, when you need access to something important, barriers can be bad. And the barrier that was set in place in Genesis chapter 3, 23 was not a good barrier. Thankfully for you and I, number three, God responded to humanity's total rejection of him by granting temporary relational access to himself, but only to those who truly desired it. This is what I love about God. God said, listen, y'all messed that up. I'm going to let you try it again, but only if you really want it. And if you don't want to follow my rules, you don't have to follow my rules. And if, and if you don't want me to have control of your life, you can have control of your life. It's totally your choice. But I'm going to create a way for you to have relational access to me again. In Genesis, it's one person at a time. 
And in Genesis chapter 5, if you read the genealogy of Adam to Noah, you'll see one person at a time people were, were trying to find out who God was and God granted them access to him relationally. And throughout Genesis, it ended up being Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph. But by the time we get to Exodus chapter 1 and 2, the nation of the family of Israel has become the nation of Israel. And very sadly, it took a desperate people more than 400 years of slavery to recognize their need for God enough to live life by his standards. I mean, think about that. You and I have had some dry spells spiritually, maybe when we were in high school, maybe when we were in college, maybe when we were living the single life in our 20s, maybe after the divorce, or maybe after we lost. I mean, all of us in here have had the dry spell spiritually where we could say it took us a week, a month, a year. It took us a few years to kind of get back on our feet spiritually. It took the nation of Israel 400 years, not a few generations, four centuries to finally wake up and say, we need to, we need to be close to God again. In Exodus chapter 2, Moses presents it this way. He said, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites. He was concerned about them. And as we read through the, the book of Exodus, we realize that he rescued them. But rescuing them was not enough for the people of Israel. They went to Moses and said, we don't just want a God who rescues us. We want a God who lives with us every day. We want a God that we can know that he's here with us. We don't just want plagues. We don't just want clouds and pillars of fire. We want a God that we know is here every day. How do we get access to God all day, every day, and not, not just when we need some plagues? And in Exodus 33, Moses took that question to God. And Moses said to the Lord in Exodus 33, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. You've said, I know you by name and you found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your way so that I can know you and I can continue to find favor with you. And remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God, for the first time since Eden, God said, I'm gonna come down and be with you. But unlike Eden, God said, this is going to come with some restrictions and some barriers because I'm not going to let you do what Adam and Eve did. I'm not, I'm not going to let you change your mind halfway through. You're going, to, you're going to do it my way. And what we find out is that the relational access that God offered his people, it came with multiple stages of separation, and it came with multiple levels of spiritual understanding. Now, on the inside of your bulletin, you're going to see this little, these little charts that I printed out for you that I need you to keep in your Bible and bring back with you every Sunday the next five weeks. Because I'm going to explain to you, I'm not going to teach through the tabernacle, nor am I going to teach through the temple, but I'm going to show you what God created in order for people to be able to worship him daily. And by understanding this, first the Old Testament tabernacle, which Moses built, and then later the Old Testament temple, which Solomon built, it me, if you don't understand what these things are, it means nothing to you that the veil was torn. It's like, who, like who cares? What, what does that even mean? But when you understand this, it means everything to you that the veil was torn. So what we find out is that there's these stages of separation. When we read through the Old Testament temple, we find out that there was an outer court. That if you were just a regular Jewish person, the closest that you could get to God, if you look at this Solomon's temple, that all's integral. None of us could even get in there. 
because that, this was all the second court, the courtyard of the priest. So regular people were really far from God. The priests, the courtyard of the priests were allowed to get a little closer to God. The holy place is kind of the inside of the temple. Only a few priests at a time were allowed to go in there, and most of them only once in their life. And then there was the most holy place, or the holy of holies, where only one man in the world at a time was allowed to go, and he was only allowed to go one day out of the entire year. It was a day called the Day of Atonement on our English calendars today. It's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the day that God forgives. And then we add to that, in Jesus' day, in Herod's temple, there was an additional courtyard that was called the Court of the Gentiles so that non-Jewish people could go worship the God of Israel. But we were five stages removed. I mean, there was this worship from this God that you were extremely distant from. And there was this thought that God is real and God is to be worshipped, but you're never going to be close to God. And God's never going to be close to you. And when we read about the, la- the stages of separation, what we learn is we learn the spiritual significance of the veil and we learn the spiritual significance of being allowed to be close to God. We learn about which you'll see on the flyer that I gave you, the basins. And we're going to learn in this series next week about the reality of, of the need that we have for cleansing of our life for our sin. And we're going to see that no one even thought about approaching the presence of God before asking God to cleanse them of the things that they had done. We're going to see the lampstand inside both the temple and the tabernacle. This shows us the reality of our need for direction and for clarity. There were no light bulbs in that day. When they went into the temple, they didn't flip on the switch. If the candles weren't burning, they had no ability to see or know how to honor God. So we talk about why Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Without this lampstand, we'd have no direction or clarity spiritually. We're going to talk about the table of showbread, which sat inside the tabernacle in the temple, which reminded people of their need for their daily bread, which Jesus later in Matthew 6 would say, when you pray, you should actually pray for daily bread because God is somebody who supplies needs. He's always supplied needs. And we're going to learn about in both the tabernacle and the temple, the altar of incense, which teaches us about our reality for our need to pray. Most priests, the closest they could ever get to God was being able to go offer incense at the altar of incense. The closest they could ever get to God was just to pray and to hope through the thick veil that he heard them. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to look at the veil and we're going to see the reality of our need for our separation from God to end, to be over. And what happens as we study this Old Testament truth in the tabernacle and later the temple two spiritual realities begin to set in that were intended to be in our heart when we understood God's plan for us. One, we're going to see that we are totally separated from God, hopelessly separated from God. As Gentiles, we can't even get into the the first court. As regular Jews, they couldn't even get into the second court. You say, how do I get into the court of the priest? You had to be a part of a specific family. You had to be a descendant of the tribe of Levite. And then you had to have your lot chosen to even go inside the holy place and you had to be voted high priest to even get close. I mean, we look and we say, my gosh, we are hopelessly separated from the presence of God. And then we would learn the second thing. We need somebody who can connect us to God. We have a major spiritual problem. We're totally and hopelessly separated from God. We need someone to help us figure this out. And what we find, point number four, is we find in the life of Jesus at the moment in Matthew 27, 51, when Jesus tore that veil, what we see is that Jesus restored the ability for humanity to live without separation from God when he died on the cross. Now, this restoration was symbolized and cemented in the tearing of the veil 
of the temple. It was like somebody kicking down a door. It wasn't like somebody unlocking the door. It wasn't like somebody opening the door. It wasn't just like somebody taking the door off the hinges. It was like somebody knocking the entire wall down and saying, come on in, the access to God is open now. In Matthew 27, 50 and 51, it says, when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. What's the first thing that happened when Jesus died? At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if this was just a physical act, remember Matthew writing to Jewish people, if this was just a physical act, just random, the veil accidentally tore, then it symbolized the worst case scenario for the Jewish people. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 6 and in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we had an Indiana Jones and the Ark of the Covenant type of moment where the people actually got close to the Ark of God behind the veil, and it killed everyone. In 1 Samuel 6, uh, the Ark had been lost in battle. It had been returned by some oxen, oxen randomly to the land of Israel. And when the people found it, they said, awesome, and they opened the top and they all died. And it was like God saying, you, you are not allowed to have that access to my spirit anymore. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David was trying to bring the ark to Jerusalem so they could have the presence of God in the city that he lived in. And they had it on some oxen going down a hill, and the oxen stumbled, and it began to slip. And some priests who were standing there grabbed it so it wouldn't fall, and God struck him dead. God said, you cannot have that type of immediate access to me. So Jewish people reading this, if they heard the veil was torn, and this was just a physical accident, they would have freaked out and said, no one can ever go in the temple again. Because if the veil tore, if the veil tore, if the ark is exposed, anyone who sees it, anyone who touches it dies. However, if this was a physical, if this was a spiritual act, then this symbolized the best case scenario for the Jewish people and for the world. Because if this act was spiritual, if it had some spiritual meaning to it, what it meant was for the very first time from Genesis 3.23, God said there's no barricade. There's no guard. There's no separation. God basically said the garden, and what was more important than the garden was the presence of God in the garden. God was basically saying, we're open for business again. And this is what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Now, I want to stop right there. The only person who had ever been able to go into the most holy place was the high priest. And he did that with tremendous fear only one day of every year. As a matter of fact, it was so dangerous for the high priest to go into the holy place that the high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, would have a rope tied around his waist. And on the bottom of the the robe that he wore were little bells because if the high priest went into the most holy place and he hadn't asked God to cleanse him and he hadn't asked God to direct him and he didn't do everything exactly the way that God said to do it, God would strike him dead and they wore the rope around their waist and the bells along the bottom of their trousers so that if they did something wrong back there and they dropped over dead, the people would know if the bells quit ringing, he fell down dead, drag him out, but don't go in and get him. That's all Old Testament truth. You can go look at it. So the high priest didn't, he, no one strutted into the holy place and said like, what's up Lord and fist bump the ark. I mean, no one had confidence approaching God, right? Like not even the guy who was allowed in. I promise you, he's sweating bullets on the way in and you know, he's got that rope around his waist reminding him, if I mess up, they're gonna drag me out of here dead. But the author of Hebrews now says, therefore brothers and sisters, not just high priests, just us, since we have confidence 
to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way open for us through the curtain, through the veil, that is his body. And since we have great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance of that with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some is in the habit are doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The author of Hebrews says, listen, listen. Since the veil is down, since the way is open, we should go get close to God. And we should come together and celebrate with other people who are close to God because no one has ever had a party behind the veil, but that's what God has invited us to now. So not only should we go there individually, but we should go there collectively and we should celebrate when we're there collectively. That's why we sing these songs about Jesus and we celebrate that his spirit is with us because the Bible tells us to. And that's why on a daily basis you should feel like driving down the road you can talk to God because he tells you to and there's nothing standing in the way. There's no barrier. Because God removed the veil, his relationship with humanity is ultimately and permanently restored but only for those who desire it. So not everyone has to come to God, but everyone can come to God. That's what Scripture is trying to teach us. And the spiritual reality of the entire Bible, from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22, the spiritual reality of Scripture is that God had always planned for humanity's separation from him to end. And God told the people exactly this. In Jeremiah 31, he said, there's going to come a day when there's going to be no more separation. I'm going to be with you, you're going to be with me. Revelation 21.3 says it this way. It's so interesting that John, seeing a glimpse of eternity, paints the exact same picture for us that we see in Genesis chapter 1. God and humanity living together with no separation between them. John said in Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people And God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. You see, we say every Sunday at our church that the mission statement of our church is we exist to see people who are far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. Why? Because that's the goal of Scripture. The goal of Scripture is to find people who are separated from God and to let them know that the way is open. I mean, I want you to think about this for a minute. Today, if today... You could be first in line at the counter of God. Would you not want to do that? I mean, have you ever experienced the moment of sheer exhilaration, that one time in your life that you walked in the DMV and there was no line, and you're like, oh my gosh, like this is going to take a minute. Like, better than being first in line at the DMV is being first in line to the throne of God. And this is what God is saying in Matthew 27, 51. When Matthew said the veil was torn, anyone who understood any Old Testament truth said, oh my gosh, God is available to me. God is accessible to me. How? The way has been opened. What is the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus said, I have the key not only to unlock it, not only to open it, not only to prop it open, but to kick the stinking thing down so that for the rest of eternity, 
Anyone who wants to come have direct access to God can. You don't have to, but you can. And we live in a church world who's tried to so ceremoniously connect people to God that we've said a prayer or, or, or we've, we've taken some steps, but there, there aren't very many people in here who feel like they've shaken God's hand, that they've given God a hug. There's very few people who feel like they've been able to go have direct access to God, but the veil teaches us that the way is open. You are first in line. You are A-list preferred. You don't have to stand in line and you don't, you don't have to acquire any points and you don't have to spend so much money. Today, the way is open if you desire to have full and total access to God. One day, we're going to live with him in a perfect world. But God wants you today to understand that the, the next 24-hour cycle of your life, you can have second by second, minute by minute, moment by moment, hour by hour, full access to him You don't have to stand in the courtyard of the Gentiles or the courtyard of the Jews or the courtyard of the priest or the holy place or the most holy place. You can go right on in 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Jesus has opened your access, but you've got to go and claim it. That's what the next six weeks will be about. But for some of you, we don't need to wait six weeks. We just need to do it right now. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me and we're going to close in prayer this morning.